Good morning. Let's open our Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, find chapter 14, and put in at verse 25, because that's where we left off in our last study. Luke 14, verse 25. I'm going to give you a reasonable amount of time to get there. I'm there. I had my, I cheated though, I was there first service. It took me a half an hour to find it first service, but I'm ready now. Luke 14, 25. And we're going to read through to the end of the chapter. Our topic this morning is discipleship. Now great multitudes went with Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, well, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him and say, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to be those people that you encourage to hear. The ears you were talking about are spiritually opened and inspired ears that are attentive to the voice of the Holy Spirit. I pray for any who may not be believers in our midst this morning, Lord, who, who are listening, that your Holy Spirit would be drawing them to Jesus Christ, showing them his love and grace and their need for salvation. And those of us who have committed our lives to you, Jesus, that we would hear you calling us to a deeper, richer walk, to a, a, a more full discipleship, and that we would gladly and willingly forsake all to follow you, Lord, because of all that you've done for you and for all that you are. Give us insight, wisdom, and understanding of these words, Lord. May they be simple in our hearing and profound in their effect. We pray in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. Imagine this situation, if you will. You've been hired to perform a job. You're now finished and you're ready to receive your salary. Your supervisor who has been more than satisfied with your work, hands you a bag of salt. Would you be satisfied with this salary, or would you be offended, even outraged? If you were a Roman soldier, you'd be very satisfied. You would have just received the normal income of a Roman soldier. The payment given to a soldier was called the salarum argentums. It's where we get our English word, salary. And so salary originally comes from the Latin root for salt. In later imperial Rome, the bag of salt was replaced by a monetary allowance, but the purpose of it was to enable the soldier to go and purchase his salt. 
And this is why we sometimes still say that a person who's a hard worker is worth his salt. Salt was once one of the most valuable commodities on earth. It was traded ounce for ounce with gold. For one thing, salt was one of the few preservatives available. It preserved fish or meat, olives, cheese, and pickled vegetables throughout the year everywhere in the world. There are, in fact, some 14,000 known uses for salt. I quit reading them after 12,703. But no, you actually, believe it or not, I love the Internet. You can go to the Salt Institute online and learn everything you never wanted to know about salt. Salt meant something far different and far greater than it does to us in our technologically advanced age of electricity and refrigeration. There's a lot more we could say about salt, but this should be enough for you to better appreciate what Jesus had to say in our text. His comments in this section all build up to the conclusion in verses 34 and 5. In those closing verses, he compares Christians to salt. You can be salt that retains its flavor, or you can be salt that relinquishes its flavor. You obviously want to be the salt that retains its flavor. Jesus tells you just how you can retain your flavor in a series of principles and parables. We'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, there are things you must forsake in order to retain your salt flavor. And number two, there are things you must foresee in order to retain your salt flavor. First of all, let's look at the things you must forsake. And the best place to start in this whole section is with the conclusion in verses 34 and 35. We miss so much of what Jesus intended because of our own experience or really lack of experience with the importance of salt. Not only do we rarely think of salt as being valuable, we've been taught by medical professionals to see it as something harmful. We need to put ourselves back in the first century and hear this the way Jesus' followers would have heard and understood it. And of course, it would have had a great deal more meaning to them as an illustration. And so let's try and and think the way they would have thought. He starts in verse 34 by saying, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? Salt is good sounds almost like a copyrighted marketing slogan to me. I was thinking, you know, first service, I remembered, uh, have it your way. Burger King, right? Now, you know what's amazing to me? I I, I don't know why, but I like this little minutiae junk, you know, and stuff. And so I noticed this, like, if you're watching a Burger King commercial and it says, have it your way, or if you're at Burger King and you read that, it has a little trademark next to it. As if you can't really use those words anymore because they've invented that phrase. I think probably legally every time you might say to somebody, well, have it your way, probably an attorney could come in and say, well, you owe Burger King 25 bucks because that's a copyrighted phrase. Now, I don't mind something fancy, you know. I mean, if somebody comes up with something really amazing, but but for Nike to say, just do it, and and that is, you know, now you can't say that really because, you know, these are our words now. These three words in this connection, these, these belong to Nike. They are the personal property of Nike. And it's crazy. But I, I kind of think, I, you know, I, I like to see humor. Maybe I'm reading into it, but I think Jesus, you know, is borrowing a copyrighted trademark from the first century. Salt is good. And everybody would have known, oh, Morton's. 
Actually, Morton's wasn't around at that time, but they were salt people. And, uh, you know, somebody had to make salt. And so, uh, you know, Hebrew National was probably doing salt. And their phrase was, salt is good. And so, uh, salt is good, and especially in their time and culture. I already mentioned one of its 14,000 uses, which was to preserve foods. Let me list just three more. Salt heals. You've probably heard the phrase, pouring salt on a wound. That's because before the days of iodine and other things, they poured salt on wounds to prevent infection. And it hurt, uh, but it did its job. Salt nourishes. Our bodies need many nutrients to keep them healthy. Salt is one of them. With too much or too little salt in our body, they would get out of kilter, our systems. But with just the right amount of salt, our bodies retain enough water to maintain equilibrium. You know when you eat certain pizzas... I won't mention them, but certain pizzas, man, don't you get really thirsty? It's because the crust is salty. You don't necessarily taste it, but some of the local pizza people use a lot of salt, usually the ones that sell beer. Because (laughs) those of you who had the experience of going into dark, dingy bars before you were Christians, remember the peanuts that they put up on the counter? Hey, great, free peanuts. That's because they were salted peanuts. And they create thirst so that you want to drink beer after beer and stuff. So, you know, these bar owners, I mean, they're smart. Salt is important to them as well. But anyway, salt is necessary. Now, by the way, here's something interesting. I I haven't fully figured out this, but I, I just want to share it with you because I think it's a very interesting observation. This chapter began, if you'll remember, with Jesus healing a man from what was called dropsy. We said that was the condition doctors now call edema edema is water retention edema is a symptom of an underlying problem and one problem that can cause edema is kidney failure and it's because the kidneys can't process the salt that is in your diet that you begin to retain too much water and and you can actually die from this now i just find it fascinating and i lay this out for you just to meditate on luke was a physician And he puts at the beginning and the end of this chapter this interesting information about salt and about the processing of salt, how Christians should be salt, too much salt, not enough salt. Very interesting when you find these connections in Scripture, just something to think about. And then the third thing, or actually the fourth thing this morning, salt seasons. Some use it sparingly, others pile it on, but all agree that it has value as a flavoring. Now, you could take each of these uses or properties and maybe all 14,000 and make a spiritual comparison. Like salt, Christians act as a preservative in society. We literally are inhibiting the decay of the society in which we live. Sometimes people think we're not doing a very good job, but I uh, hate to think what society would be like if the church was gone. Well, you can tell. Just read the book of Revelation. You'll find out what society will be like when the church is removed. Secondly, like salt, Christians should promote spiritual health and healing. Sometimes the gospel is like salt being poured into a wound, but it stops the rot and the putrefaction and it saves and heals. Like salt, Christians can provide nourishment as we give the truth in each situation. And like salt, Christians should season their environment. For example, the Bible says that your speech should be always gracious, and then it says, I quote, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to answer every man. 
And so wherever you find yourself, the way you conduct yourself, and especially your words, are like salt, seasoning that environment, giving it a Christian flavor. You want to be good, salty salt. But some salt, Jesus said, loses its flavor. First century salt was unrefined. In the Holy Land, it was gathered mostly from the shores of the Dead Sea, which is also called the Salt Sea because it has so much uh, high density of salt. Unrefined salt loses its flavor when it is diluted with other earthly elements. Comparing salt to the Christian, we would say that you lose your salt flavor and thereby become ineffective because of earthly things that you add to your life which dilute your walk with the Lord. So the Lord says you're salt. When you become saved, you become salt. But if we keep adding earthly elements and worldly things to our life, we will be salt that has become diluted and we will lose our flavor and our ability to do any of the things that salt is to do. And so verse 35, Jesus says, That kind of salt is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Salt had application on land as a weed killer and as a fertilizer for certain crops. Jesus may also have been referring to the still common practice of putting out salt for livestock to lick while they're out in the field. As for the dunghill, salt is reported by some to have been used to facilitate the breaking down of waste products. At any rate, salt that was no longer salty, that had become diluted with other elements, was good for nothing but to be thrown out. There was no use for it whatsoever. Now I want you to notice something important before we move on from this verse. Jesus said that men throw out useless salt. Applying this to ourselves means that you do not cease being a Christian just because you're not salty anymore. God doesn't throw you out. The idea here is that you are ineffective in your testimony as a Christian. This is going to become important in a moment because I'm going to mention briefly a debate in the Christian community about whether a Christian can be a, uh, well, whether discipleship requires full commitment or if you can kind of coast through it. And, and there's wild opinions on both sides. But I, wanted, I want you to say, Jesus is not saying, hey, if you're unsalty salt, I'll have nothing to do with you. I throw you out. But he is saying that if your salt loses its flavor, men will get no effect from it and you will be useless in your testimony. Very important. Now, Jesus strongly exhorted us to hear what he was saying. He's saying, retain your flavor, stay salty, which brings us to the principles and the parables. In the first set, you learn that there are things you must forsake if you are going to retain your salt flavor. And the first is kind of surprising. You must forsake your earthly family. In verse 25, it says, now great multitudes went with him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. In every multitude, there will be believers and unbelievers. Probably in just the small group we have here this morning, there are believers and some unbelievers. Among the believers, there are those who coast and those who commit 
when it comes to discipleship. Jesus' comments explain to you what is required of a believer who desires to quit coasting and commit to really following him as his disciple. And he says, you have to hate your father and mother, your wife and children, your brothers and sisters. He really means it, but just what is meant. The Bible never contradicts itself. In other places, you are clearly instructed, you're even commanded to love and honor your father and mother, to love your wife, and the same would be true of your husband, to love your children, and to love your brothers and sisters. You are even told that you love your enemies as a Christian. So whatever Jesus is saying here can't mean that you literally hate those people because elsewhere we're told that you are to love everyone with God's love. So what's the answer? Well, the answer to what Jesus meant is very simple, and it's really obvious to any one of you who has become a Christian. You get saved, and you would say that you have fallen in love with Jesus Christ. His love has drawn you to Him, and you are in love with Him. And, and we, say, we sing those things, and we say those things, I love Jesus. What do you do once you get saved? Well, you tell people. You tell your wife. You tell your husband. You tell your children. You tell your brothers and sisters. You tell your family. You tell all of the people that Jesus mentioned in this verse. How do they respond? Well, in many cases... They respond as if you hate them because you love Jesus more. And some of you know what I'm talking about. Here you have, you know, your life was just headed in the wrong direction. You had uh, ha habits and, and things that you couldn't get rid of, things that your family didn't even like about you. And then you come to Jesus Christ, you respond to His love, and you come and tell them that you're in love with God and that He's changed you. And all of a sudden, it becomes a challenge to your marriage. Your wife's not really happy about that. Your husband can't stand you anymore. Your children, your father and mother. And it seems as though you hate them because you love Jesus so much more. This was my experience. Maybe you didn't experience this, but I think many of you did and do. I went and told my family that I'd become a Christian, and it was like I had just you know, told them that I was going to die. And then as I started living the Christian life, what do you mean you're not coming here and you're going to church? What do you mean this? And, and more than once, more than a hundred times, someone in my family has said, it seems like you love other Christians more than your own family. And so from that point of view, from their point of view, it's as if you hate them. And it's a really serious pressure. It's a big pressure in this area. I talk to a lot of people in Kings County who are really under tremendous family pressure, especially families that have a strong religious background but not necessarily a Christian background. You become a Christian, you want to leave the church that you grew up in because they're not talking about Jesus Christ. It's a religion. It's a ritual kind of a thing. And man, your family is on you like ugly on an ape. They are all over you. What are you doing? Where are you going? What do you mean you're not going to baptize the baby? What do you mean you're not going to do this? What do you mean? 
and they think you're going to a cult. And there is, and you know, I mean, families can be really almost evil in the kind of pressure that they put on you. When you're, you know, when your mom looks at you and say, oh, don't you love me anymore? You're turning your back on the church. You're turning your back on the family. This is what Jesus is talking about. He says, now, at that time, at that moment, when that happens, what are you going to do? Are you going to take that stand for Jesus Christ and say, I have to go where the Lord leads me. I have to follow the Lord. I love you more than I ever loved you before because of Jesus. Or are you going to try to find that compromise, that middle ground where you can keep one foot in the family and hopefully still be a disciple? And so this isn't, this isn't really deep, but it is profound. Sometimes your family is going to think that you hate them if you count the cost and become a disciple. And so that's what Jesus is talking about there. And then he goes on, and he says that the second thing you must uh, forsake to retain your salt flavor is your own life. Verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Well, what does this mean? Well, Jesus, I believe, explained what he meant in the very next verse when he said, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Forget the psychobabble you might be thinking of in terms of the dangers of low self-esteem or the negative effects of self-hate. By hate your own life, Jesus means you daily bear your cross for him. A person who bore their cross was someone on their way to being crucified. The state, in their case the Roman government, had assumed authority over their life, sentenced them to forfeit their life for the good of society. A Christian disciple is someone who has freely given Jesus authority over their life. You have forfeited all your rights in order to serve the Lord in whatever capacity, in whatever circumstances, in whatever city, through whatever suffering He has determined. Your life is no longer yours. It is His to do with what pleases Him. And this is what He means by hating your own life, is that you've given it over to Him. Now, if that sounds scary... Just remember that the person who has this authority, the person who you give your life to, is Jesus, who loved you so much that he bore his own cross for you. When you keep in mind who it is we're talking about, it doesn't seem unusual at all that you would entrust your dreams and desires and plans and priorities to him. Doesn't it follow from what you know about God that ultimately he has your best interest in mind, that he's going to do what is good and right for you? And so it shouldn't scare you. It sounds scary. Oh, I've got to bear my cross and give up my own dreams and desires. Hey, your dreams and desires are going to lead you nowhere unless they're in line with Jesus Christ's purposes for your life. He's going to bring joy and fulfillment into your life. And so don't be afraid of committing yourself to discipleship. And if you are, think about the person who is calling you to be his disciple. Now drop down to verse 33, which summarizes the things you must forsake in order to retain a salt flavor. He says, likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Your family and your own life are just two examples of the kinds of things you must forsake. You must forsake all that you have to follow Jesus as his disciple. Jesus is saying it is a wholehearted commitment. It is a decision 
once and for all and daily to give your life to the Lord. Now, there is a debate among Christians as to whether or not you can even be saved if you do not forsake all. In other words, is it possible or impossible to be a Christian but not be a disciple? And it's a sincere debate. It's a theological debate. There's good people on both sides of it. Some really cute catchphrases have come out of it. My favorite one, the people who will tell you that if Jesus isn't the Lord of your life, you're not even saved. They like to say if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. Man, that blows me away. And so here's what, if you're interested in this, here's what you ought to do. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but here's what you ought to do. You get John MacArthur's book, The Gospel According to Jesus. And you read through that copious volume, and you get to the end and you think, if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. And, and half the people I know aren't even Christians. And, and you're just convinced out of your mind that there's no such thing as a Christian who's not a disciple. But then quickly you go out and you buy Charles Ryrie's book, So Great Salvation. And you're thankful that there's such a thing as grace and mercy, and you get back on track with you know, some things, and, and, and hopefully you get balanced out again. But this debate has been going on for centuries. It's going to continue to go on. Without going into all the arguments, I believe it is all too possible to be saved. You're a Christian, but you're going to fall short in being a disciple. I believe that because I fall short in being a disciple, and so do you. I don't want to, you don't want to, but we do. You know, when people start saying things to me like, well, have you forsaken all, brother? No, and neither have you. What is, yeah, I mean, the idea, it's a, it's a goal for sure. And that's the idea. What's the attitude of your heart? I mean, I, I, no, I haven't forsaken all because the Lord keeps showing me things in my life that don't belong to him. And, and so you have to say, well, at what point have I forsaken enough? And then am I working to be a Christian or did I get saved or not? And so it's, it's a big thing. Believe me, just I believe that it's all too possible to be a Christian but not be a disciple. All disciples are believers but not all believers are disciples. That's the cute catchphrase on the other side of the fence. I like that one. What I will say is this. If you ever find yourself relieved that you can coast as a Christian rather than commit to discipleship, there is something very wrong with your relationship with the Lord. The minute you have that thought, if you're sitting here this morning and thinking, man, I'm so glad that I can just coast through the rest of my life, be a half-hearted disciple, there's something wrong with your relationship with God. You don't know Jesus Christ the way that you ought to. In fact, you may not know Him at all, if you can think that. Or, if you know Him and you're thinking that there should be a prick from the Holy Spirit saying, hey, I'm convicting you, you're off track, you're backslidden. How sad that the Savior who loved you while you were yet a sinner, who died for you, who has given you life and hope, both in this life and in the life to come, is somebody that you would want to insulate and isolate yourself from because he might ask you to give up a few earthly relationships or not pursue some crazy dream of your own because he has something better for you. And so the answer to discipleship 
is to just fall in love again with Jesus Christ, to commit and to recommit your life to him. Now, at this point in our study, it sounds almost like Jesus doesn't want many disciples. Lots of multitudes are following him, and he's, it's almost like he says, okay, I've got to thin out this crowd. It's too many people. I don't want a bunch of disciples. Well, that's not true. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. And those who come to him, he wants them to experience a fullness of joy. And I believe quite the opposite is true. He wants you to commit to being his disciple and to encourage you to do so he told these next two parables the things you must foresee in order to retain your salt flavor now the two parables have in common that they involve foresight looking ahead to the consequences of your decision to either coast or commit to being a disciple Jesus wants you to have the foresight to not be like the failed tower builder and he wants you to have the foresight to be like the fighting king. Have the foresight to not be like the failed tower builder. We read about him beginning in verse 28. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. This is obvious all of jesus hearers knew this already this is not a teaching he's just pointing out something that everybody knows or should know that it's silly and stupid to start a major building project and not be uh, and without knowing that you're going to be able to finish it and accomplish what you set out to do now why is jesus telling this story well, we usually apply this by saying we must count the cost of being a disciple. And, and we, apply, we, we say, you know, people, maybe they come forward to receive the Lord, and then we want to take them over in the corner and say, now, are you willing to give up everything? Are you willing to lay out your wallet right now? Are you willing to give me your car? You know, or, or will you turn your back on your family? You know, and, I'm, and, and like, you need to really count the cost. Well, that may be true. Uh, in some applications and, and in some interpretation, that may be true. But you don't always really know the cost of your discipleship. The Lord has your life planned out for you. I think it's more likely, and maybe you will too after I explain this, that this is describing the cost of not being a disciple. Not the cost of whether I want to be a disciple or not, but what it will cost you if you decide against discipleship. And here's what I mean. Let's say you're not a believer and therefore you're not a disciple. You're building a tower. But does it really matter what you build or accomplish in your life if you're not a Christian? I, was, I can't help but think of Donald Trump because of the tower thing, you know, the Trump Towers. Wildly successful American businessman. Uh, television show, he's got properties and, you know, he's... He's this fantastically successful person. I don't know anything about his eternal condition. I don't know if he's a believer or not. I suspect he's not a believer because I've never heard him give a testimony. And so he's building tower after tower after tower. What does it matter if he doesn't come to know the Lord? There's a sense in which that everything he's built is going to be destroyed one day. The Lord is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. There's not going to be a Trump tower in it. There's going to be a new Jerusalem in it with mansions that are way out 
outshining anything that we could build. And so that's the So if you decide not to become a Christian, you're like the guy trying to build something and it, it's all going to come to nothing. Let's say you are a believer, but you don't want to commit yourself to being a disciple. If you don't follow God's plan for your life, you're never going to build the family or the ministry or the career that he intended for you. God has good works before you that he has ordained for you to find. But if you want to go your way, coast through life, barely get to heaven, what you build is going to end up wood, hay, and stubble when you stand before the Lord. It's going to burn up in a flash of flame because it wasn't what he intended for your life. And, so, and while you're doing it, others are going to mock you. And that means that you're not going to have any real testimony. You could have been salt at your workplace or in your home or, or wherever you are, but instead you're useless and ineffective. And so what Jesus is saying is, hey, if you're afraid of, of committing to discipleship, let me give you some foresight here. Here's what happens if you don't. And you look at that and you think, I want to be a disciple, Lord. I want my life to count. I want it to matter. I want to affect people for time and for eternity. The fighting king in the next parable had foresight. What king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against them with 20,000? Or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. In this case, again, another very obvious case in their culture, the stronger king with the larger army was going to win this battle. This isn't a miraculous Gideon situation. Jesus is just saying, look, if you go against 20,000 armed men with 10,000 armed men, you're going to lose. The king had foresight, and it prevented him from acting foolishly and bringing defeat and destruction upon him and his kingdom. What if in this parable the stronger king represents God and the inevitable coming of his kingdom on earth? If that be the case, and I think it is, you'd better make peace with him rather than war against him. Let's say again you're not a believer. You are at war with God. You'd better make peace with him before it's too late. A day is coming, the Bible says, when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so you're, you're going to lose that battle. When the Lord returns, if you're not a Christian, you're going to lose that war. Let's say you're a believer, but you don't want to commit yourself to being a disciple. You are also, in a sense, fighting against God. For example, in the book of James, with boldness, James says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And so it's possible for believers to bring in this worldliness, to dilute their saltiness, and to be fighting against God. And Jesus is saying, think of this situation. Don't be like the king with 10,000 who thinks he can prevail in building his own kingdom because the Lord is coming back and he will prevail. And so make peace with God. If you're not a believer, make peace with the Lord. If you are a believer, quit fighting against the Lord and commit yourself to discipleship. In both these cases, the tower builder and the king, the key was to have foresight. The things you foresee help you retain your salt flavor. What you should foresee is your appointment with Jesus Christ. 
The Bible says that unbelievers, non-believers, have an appointment before the Lord. It's at the great white throne judgment in Revelation uh, chapter 20. And it's, uh, it's an appointment you don't want to be at. It's one that you want to avoid at all costs. Because when you get there, it's too late. You've tried to build tower after tower. They failed. You've been at war with God. And the time has come for judgment. And you're judged and cast alive into a lake burning with fire where you spend the rest of eternity. But believers have a, a judgment coming too. It's very different. You're saved, and so you're not ever going to be judged for your sins. That took place at the cross. But when you die or when we're raptured, each of us are going to stand before the Lord at what's called His Bema, or the reward seat. And He is going to look at our lives. He's going to review them for the things that had the flavor of salt, actually. And whatever didn't, He's just going to burn away. And it says in there that some are going to be saved just by fire probably smell like smoke for a few thousand years now i made that part up but but you get the idea so the idea if you're a christian you're not living for today you're living for tomorrow in fact you're living in tomorrow the bible says we're seated in heavenly places with jesus christ and from that vantage point knowing that's where you're headed knowing the truth about eternity then you live your life backwards and say, okay, now, in my family, with my friends, with my children, in the things that I'm trying to accomplish, do I want to be a disciple or do I want to do things my way? The choice is obvious. It, 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 and the only thing that we need to do is be willing to repent and return to the first things. Get back to the way we were when you were first saved. And we had that boldness to tell people that we were Christians. And we were willing to lose our job if necessary. And all of those kinds of things because we were so in love with Jesus Christ. Let me give you some practical things. Because we sometimes make discipleship so hard that we can never hope to reach our goals. I want to suggest a few simple salty things looking at your home and your work and your church. At home. What is keeping you from spending 15 minutes with Jesus, either in the morning or at night? You know, people, they want to recommit to the Lord and start having devotions. They read the, you know, the biography of David Livingston or George Mueller and I mean, these guys who woke up at midnight and spent the first eight hours on their knees in prayer. You're not going to do that. Not tomorrow anyway, but 15 minutes. Get up 15 minutes early tomorrow. Stay up 15 minutes late tomorrow or tonight and spend time with the Lord. Are you reading Christian literature on your way to and from work? Are you listening to Christ-centered music and programming? Now, you know me. I'm not against other influences. I probably have... Oh, never mind. But anyway. <laughs> but seriously, I remember when I first got saved. What, you tape the messages? Well, I want to listen to those during the week. There's Christian radio programs? Wow. I mean, it was, you kind of fill your mind because you were playing catch-up all the time. At some point, I think we feel like we've caught up. And we think we've gotten behind on what the world is doing. And we want to catch up there. And it's, it's a bad thing to be caught up with. And so 
Let's just be careful there. At work or at school, as your case may be, what's keeping you from letting folks know you're a Christian? Can you bring your Bible to work? If you can, why don't you? Just carry your lunch, carry your Bible. The biggest Bible you can get. The family Bible in the box with the picture of Jesus on the cover, you know. Just bring it. Set it on the desk. You don't even have to read it. Can you uh, wear or display Christian symbols or literature? T-shirts and stuff like that. Do it until they tell you you can't. Why not? I had this experience when I was a salesman. I used to pass out Christian literature until they told me I couldn't do it. And then I didn't because I wanted to honor my employer. And then I tried to do something else that they didn't want me to do. You know, But there's always a way to stay ahead of them. Can you bring a stack of invitations? You know those really cool invitations we've had printed up. Just lay them out at work. Put them everywhere you go. And, and, and just do it. If there are other believers where you work or where you go to school, do you meet with them to pray about how you can best reach the non-believers? Hey, you want to go to lunch? No, we have a meeting every week. What do you mean we? Uh, the Christians, we get together. What for? We're praying about how we can evangelize you. At church, this will be good for you this morning. How committed are you to attend? Well, you're here, so that's your, you're good on that. But here's something. If you miss a Sunday morning, do you get the CD and listen to the message? I know you don't because I see the volume of CDs. Now, listen to me. We're not trying to sell CDs. In fact, I'll give them to you if you can't afford it. But here's what I'm getting at. People, and, and I can say this, I, I think you'll understand, I've been here long enough to, you know, I can say things like this and you know that I'm not going, I haven't gone crazy, but I happen to be here, I'm the pastor, there could be another person here as your pastor and the same would be true where you would think, man, that, that was just great teaching. Because people tell me, they go, man, I really enjoyed the teaching, man, I just, wow, you know, and it's really just the Holy Spirit because some of the things you tell me were great, I didn't even say. And that's okay, but so it's the Holy Spirit ministering to you, and I like that. I don't mind being stupid for God. That's fine. And so, but sometimes I think, okay, you know, people get so excited. You know, man, I was there, and I heard the message, but I know I'm talking to somebody who, when they're not there, doesn't hear the message and doesn't care to hear the message. They just figure, well, I missed church this week. They maybe went to church, maybe didn't. I'm not trying to put a trip on you. I'm just trying to say, if you want to commit to being a disciple, you know, we hear that and the devil comes in and he says, Gene wants you to go to Africa and be a full-blown disciple and leave your heart in Africa where they're going to bury it and eat the rest of you. <laughs> That's what people hear. And we need to bring this, reel it in and say, how about I just take seriously the fact that I go to church? You know, they teach all the way through the Bible. So if I was here, you know, two weeks ago, I missed something in between. I wonder what happened in that section of Scripture. I wonder if God was speaking to me in that. How about Wednesday night? What keeps you from coming out on Wednesday night? Now, I, I know everybody can't come out on Wednesday night. This isn't an attendance. We don't take attendance. But what, what is to keep a person from... And, and it's for you to answer. Well, on Wednesday night, I do this. Okay? How important is that? And if you miss Wednesday, let's say you can never come on Wednesday night. Are you getting the Wednesday night CDs to find out what we're doing on Wednesday night? And the answer to that is a resounding no. <laughs> so there are some simple things you could do 
to, be, to really say, hey, I want to get back to the way I was when I was first saved. When the Word of God was powerful and alive and, and when it was being taught, I was there, I was on time, I had my Bible open, I was writing all over my Bible, I was listening, I was paying attention, I went to lunch and we talked about it, it was real and meaningful. All I'm talking about is what Jesus says to the Ephesian church. He says, if you've left your first love, then just get back to it. And that's what discipleship is ultimately, isn't it? It's just realizing that Jesus loves you and that his love has never wavered and never will. But yours can and does and maybe has. But you don't want it to anymore. And you want to take whatever steps are necessary short of going to Africa. Unless God's calling you to do that. But he's probably not. He's probably just calling you to simple things that will cause you to be in a place where you can hear his voice draw close to him and he will draw close to you amen let's pray father we do thank you for these things because none of them are a burden lord and it's not your purpose to put burdens on us you didn't turn around at that crowd to thin them out but to tell them the truth so that they would join you lord as full-fledged full-blown disciples so that they could see that there was some building to do that would have eternal value and weight. And that the best way to minister to your family is to love Jesus Christ. So that they can see what uh, a sincere love you have, not just for us, but for them as well. And I pray that we would take all these things to heart. That we would, Lord, um, recommit ourselves moment by moment and day by day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand. One final chorus. There'll be some guys here to pray with you after the service as usual. So if there's anything at all on your heart, come down and uh, share it in prayer. Wednesday we'll be here in the sanctuary for communion. I, uh, I love being here. I'd come if I wasn't the pastor. It's so cool. But uh, it's up to you. I know everybody can't come on Wednesday night. Uh, but I also know that sometimes we have lame excuses too. And, uh, you know... We don't take attendance. We don't ask for money. Everything that we do is for you so that you can experience Jesus Christ in a deeper, fuller, richer way. Uh, and, and that's really all that we want to ever do is show you Jesus, his grace and his mercy and his love. He makes some pretty strong demands on your life, but he's earned the right to do it because he died for you that you might live. Let's live for him until his coming. Amen. God bless you. When the music fades and all is stripped away and I simply come Longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart I'll bring you more than a song or a song in not what you have required You search so deeper within Through the way things appear You're looking into my eyes So I'm coming back to the heart of worship And it's all about you 
King of endless words, no one could express how much you deserve. Though I'm weak and poor, all I have is yours, every single breath. And I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in a is not what you have required You search much deeper within Through the way things appear You're looking into my heart I'm coming back to you God bless you this week.